Hey, so this episode took a lot longer to edit and all that than was originally anticipated. So some of the uh, news you'll find in this episode are a little out of date uh, for those of you that didn't check out the uh, original YouTube video. For example, like the uh, Werewolf 20th Kickstarter is actually going on right now. Uh, there's actually, as of, as of right now when I'm recording this, it's got 36 hours left, so uh, if you're interested in that, definitely go check it out, and better hurry up as well. And without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Welcome to Dark Ideas Radio, episode number 39. I am, of course, your host, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by... Well, actually, it's it's morning right now. I'm joined by Chris. Hello. Joined by Steve. What up, dogs? And a plethora of White Wolf and Onyx Path writers, art director, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, first off, we got Eddie Webb. How's it going, Eddie? Hey, pretty good, guys. Hey, that. We got Justin Achille. Howdy. We've got Rich Thomas. Hey, guys. And we've got Stu Wilson. Or is it Steve Wilson? Whoa. American hero. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, you're just letting my secret out all over the internet there. Sorry, man. He sounds totally American, doesn't he? That doesn't sound like an American. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd also like to bring up that... Uh, it's a bit of a special episode because uh, Eddie Webb and Stu Wilson have not been on since season one of Darker Days. We're now in season four. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. I thought you were Actually, a regular, Eddie. Well, I was, and then uh, I got onto the episode with me, Stu, and Chuck, and I think that was probably the problem right oh, there. It, it broke it. Yeah. Right, because at least some of us were drinking during that episode, I also remember, so it was... <laughs> Was that the Invention of Cock Spiders episode? Yes, that was the Cock Spiders <laughs> episode. You're right. <laughs> and now I know why I've been gone for two seasons. <laughs> well, it's uh, good to have you two back. And, of course, uh, Justin is a uh, a new host, or a guest host, I should say. Um, so it's exciting to have you as well. It's good to be here. I've done a handful of these, um, not with you guys, so uh, every time there's a non-sequitur, that's just me kind of having post-traumatic stress syndrome. <laughs> Is oh, that what we're calling it now? Ah, what? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, cool. So, um, just to get through some of our uh, Darker Days news and that kind of stuff. Um, first off, uh, we got a new user on Posturus, uh, Metal Phil. Actually, I should probably say Metal Phil. Like it's Metal, uh, Metal Phil. Gear Solid. And uh, it's good to have him on board. He's been posting quite a bit uh, about blood sorcery and um, Children of the Revolution. So... Cool stuff indeed. Uh, and then jumping Anything over to good? <laughs> uh, we'll we'll talk about this too uh, during the yeah. during the news segment, I'm sure. Um, jumping quickly over to the mailbag segment. Let's not spend too much time on this because we got some uh, some guests with us. But uh, Alakov sent us some appreciation for uh, the Black Sun, Black Swan, Black Swan, <laughs> Black Sun <laughs> um, film 
kind of overview that we did last episode. So uh, we definitely appreciate that. We're glad that uh, there's other fans of that film out there. As well, uh, Vince, former host and uh, ex- now currently executive producer, saved 15 Vampire and Dark Ages books from the recycling bin uh, at his new place in Texas. And he also wants an Ars Magica review. So uh, I personally don't know much about that game setting. So it'd be great if we could get some people on board to uh, perhaps do a Darkling on that in the future. Yes, someone inf- more informed about it than, than us two, because I've never touched it. But I think I might have to go get... Is it on um, drive through? I bet I've it is. I've never looked, really, so if it I is, think... then I'll grab it. If it is, I'm not sure if it's under us, but I think it's probably on there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Atlas Games has it now, I believe. Yep. Yeah, I think the fourth edition's free on drive through still. Or it was at one point. It's hmm. been a while since free. Hmm. <laughs> That's an interesting price. that. I may be able to afford that. I don't know. I think I, uh, <laughs> I think I went overboard with the uh, the drive-through um, featured reviewer thing because I stopped getting free coupon codes. So ah. uh, <laughs> might have to get on that. I've I've been getting loads and having to just go. No, I have no time to read any of these. Yeah, exactly. Well, I did tell Matt McElroy not to allow any uh, any any reviewers who did less than five stars of our products to get anything. So maybe that was. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's objective. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just throwing that as a possibility. So what you're saying is now no one gets our stuff. Ah, <laughs> not the stuff you worked on, pal. That's true. That's true. No one who understands that it's a five star uh, supplement. Right. Ours magic is no longer free. I just checked. Mm. <laughs> that's unfortunate. I thought you were made a, a, a fiat there already. It's not free. <laughs> Screw you, people. Cool, and uh, Laughing Hyena left us a comment with a real gem. Perhaps in the new W20, Pentex funds a subversive kids' TV show called My Little Wolfies. Mm. <laughs> yep, Stu, you better put that in now. I spent uh, the train journey coming back from Dusseldorf yesterday um, joking with my wife about how many kids' shows I could turn into uh, Truffet. So, Teletubbies... Um, Ugh. Bananas in pajamas, coming up the stairs with a knife, um, various things. It just led to complete insanity on a very long train journey, and people looking at us wondering <laughs> why we were laughing. Sometimes that's um, what you need on a long journey. If you look at my Google Plus, I post up a video to a kids show called The Riddlers. It's very creepy, and you'll be wondering how was that ever a kids show? It's quite creepy. Where's it from? Uh, it's it's a UK one. If anyone should know about it, it should be Steve. Or Steve, oh maybe. yeah, the oh, red yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's some uh, pretty nasty stuff. And um, puddle lady older kind of... and just as creepy. Yeah, and if you remember things like um, uh, the, is it Jack and Ori on stuff like yeah. that on old BBC? There was some oh, really yeah. twisted stuff on that back in the day. Yeah. I think it could be quite a great source of weird stuff for um, an innocence game. <laughs> Definitely. Nothing like Definitely. turning your childhood into uh, you know. R-rated horror. Um, yeah. And next up, Mike, we have more discussion going on on the posturus. Yeah, um, we talk about Games Workshop a lot. Um, <laughs> it's actually pretty funny the amount of, that we just don't talk about World of Darkness on there. Um, but there is, of course, some discussion going on about uh, Children of the Revolution. Because, Steve, you've got that. Um, and you also you said that there was something in the back about... Uh, Exalted books, Nuwad, Siwad, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, like uh, some of the old uh, adverts in the uh, early books, uh, just listing out when they're hoping to release things in a, a sort of paragraph about each product. It's uh, pretty interesting. But I've got to say that I'm really into uh, uh, Children of the Revolution, to be honest, because uh, I like the way that it was released with uh, all the stats for the characters, unlike Children of the Inquisition, which was a great book, but never had any stats for any of those uh, vampires in there. So you could just take these guys and put them straight into your chronicle straight away. It was just plug and play, which is brilliant. That was, uh, we talked a lot back and forth about that, Rich and I did. Yeah. And um, it came down to, when I was working on the B20 Companion, we added a lot of actual systems into the uh, uh, titles chapter, for example, and then we put that material out, and there was some feedback that uh, indicated that people didn't particularly want this uh, very systems-heavy approach. They wanted more like setting pieces, uh, but at the same time, I thought that if we're giving you, you know, 17, 18 new vampires to use in your chronicle, and we just say, ah, make up whatever you want for them. I don't know how useful that is, you know, as a game book. I mean, it's a great right. like art piece, uh, but it's not inherently useful, and especially if we're trying to, you know, tighten up systems in the 20th uh, anniversary edition material. I thought, you know, some some good stuff that shows here's how you can do vampires. You know, here's how you can apply some of this new material. You know, so we wanted to show some some amount of systems there. Right. Yeah, and I think you have to remember that, you know, I mean, Children of the Inquisition. I mean, we did that in what 1993, 1992. Um, and, and so there was a big drive at the time not to put any stats in there because this was an art book. This was a book that could be used however you needed to use it, but most of all, it was an art book. So, you know, mm -hmm. in fact, there are more words than we actually thing. Yeah. yeah. But as it was such a uh, kind of uh, iconic piece for the early kind of uh, oh, uses yeah. of uh, Vampire, I mean, for me, um, that book kind of blew my mind. And then the, the kind of follow-up book that's a bit similar to that is um, – as Kindred's Most Wanted, right? Um, mm -hmm. That had stats in it as well that I found more useful than I could say than uh, a whole bunch of great pictures and a whole great uh, bunch of great words about vampires. But instead, just something I just grab hold of, just choose and lay down on the table. I mean, there's some great names in that um, book. I mean, some of the uh, some of the, the the ideas that were laid down in fourth in it as well. That there's a kind of like uber squad of. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Archons going around that was quite interesting as well. So it was uh, that was more useful to me as a as a, as an end user, I'd say. Yeah, it's funny because uh, several of the uh, uh, characters from sort of the Inquisition, I think, ended up being more iconic for Vampire. Uh, but then also the ones that I think make it into people's games more are the ones from Kindred Most Wanted. And I think it's for the exact reason you discussed there. I think it's because, you know, there are systems there and they let you use them as opposed to, um, you know, if you want someone just moving through and making a cameo, that's great. Um, I remember working on Children of the Night. We had uh, Karsh and Holland Ahab there and we kind of intimated through the systems that they were both actually the same character and uh, that really went a long way towards stoking some conversations. Uh, among oh, yeah. Watched the uh, mm -hmm. story for many years. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was. I think you know, with uh, with Inquisition, um, you had one thing going with me. You got to Kindred. There, it's also a lot easier to figure out how you work them into your chronicle. I mean, because they're you know they're wanted you know, criminals of the of the Kindred. So you know, it's it, it kind of gives yourself it gives you a little plot hook right from the beginning on how to how these guys should be treated, and then you can run with it. Inquisition was a lot more freewheeling, and it was Dracula. Yeah, also Dracula. Pretty cool. 
yeah, but both pretty cool. So nice, good stuff. And the uh, last bit of uh, mailbag is that uh, Steve, you you donated to the show. I really appreciate that, man. Hey, no problem. I'm reaching deep into my shallow pockets. <laughs> well, uh, just uh, be- just because we got a donation doesn't mean uh, everyone else doesn't benefit. So we're going to have actually an extra bonus secret frequency uh, that I'll be doing after the end credits of the show, just so everyone gets a little something extra. All right? Nice. Cool. And with that, let's move on over to White Wolf News. <laughs> So, uh, the Vampire Elder Kindred Network, uh, Beacon, for the uh, Vampire the Eternal Struggle card game, has reported that Vitesse may come back as a uh, POD through drive through cards. Um, nothing really official yet, they're still trying to figure it out and all that. But uh, I think this is pretty exciting news. Um, we'll see if they can actually I pull it I heard that rumor as well, actually. Indeed. And I can't comment on that rumor. I, I was just going to mention that I just heard that rumor. That's as far as far as I could go with that. But text for uh, Children of the Revolution before we put it up publicly. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> it means something. So he may be making vampires for something. I wonder what it is. But that being said, I mean, I, regardless of the properties, the idea of the whole drive-through cards thing is really, really fascinating because it was another kind of arm of the classic White Wolf properties is those the card games, both collectible and non-collectible, and so it, it'd be really cool if something like that could possibly be worked out, or just other card games that have fallen the wayside over the past 20 years from a variety of companies. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a lot of good stuff and a lot of chaff in the uh, CCG Revolution, which is actually when I got started gaming. Uh, I started with yeah. Magic the Gathering, um, mm-hmm. so it would be really exciting to see some of those things come back. But then there's yeah, also I mean, the Hallowed of Over the Edge, Over the Edge card game, which was the On the Edge CCG, and I just love the hell out of that game. Yep, I'm like the only person who played it. I think <laughs> it doesn't doesn't exist for me. I didn't do any art for it. That's true. You don't get sign- con- people at the convention signing cards for it, so it doesn't matter to you. I don't even know that it exists. <laughs> I've done art for card games. Yes, you have. <laughs> he does. Actually, this is a great time for my uh, quick question. So, uh, Justin, Rage Project Twilight, uh, what can you tell us about it? It was this, this expansion that was mentioned that would be coming out like real promised. soon. It was promised. You promised everyone. We haven't seen it yet. <laughs> uh, it's mostly because my promises aren't worth a damn thing. So uh, it was actually supposed to be follow-up on um, the Legacy of the Tribes uh, supplement for Rage there. And it was intended to be, if you've played Rage, you know that it's a kind of beer and pretzels game. There's a lot of cards flying out. There's a lot of, you, know, you put characters down and they die really quickly and you burn through a lot of equipment. And um, the Project Twilight expansion was supposed to kind of Turn that up to eleven, where uh, the, the players or the the characters from Project Twilight were supposed to go out. They were supposed to die quickly because they're mortals fighting against werewolves. So you were actually supposed to play the agents of the government agency, uh, Project Twilight. And there was uh, you know planned out to be a lot of equipment, a lot of you know like firearms and more mundane type equipment. Um, but uh, by the time we got around to it, we actually just we we weren't doing any more. Uh, rage supplements internally, so it just it kind of got shelved. That's cool. So it's going to be a third faction. Yes, yes. 
that was that was the plan there, and it was supposed to be. Um, while we were doing playtesting, there was a, a quote. Uh, Fred Yelp, who was in sales at the time, he he had. We were playing, and he said, "You're not going to live long enough for aggravated damage to matter." And I thought that would be a great philosophy to bring into the card expansion. So that was that was kind of the plan there. Who can we bring into here that aggravated damage won't even matter for? They turn around too quickly. Wit and wisdom of Fred York. Good stuff. All right, and uh, Children of the Revolution is now out for Kickstarters, and we already talked about that a little bit, so I'm not sure if we want to bring up any more. Um, it's awesome! Yay! Woo! <laughs> Good it was stuff. the second Vampire Twentieth Kickstarter. Um, it also made its uh, it's made its funding. So it's Rich is it at the printer now. Uh, it is actually yeah. The files are at the printer. Um, I'm waiting to find out if I did them right. So when I find out that I did them right, then uh, then I'm I'm I'll say that they're actually at the printer. You know, like because they, they, they can't really work on them until you right. confirm that I did. They're them in the printer's hands. Seriously. Yeah, and I may, have, be printing. I may have completely screwed them up. I'm not sure. Is the same printer as the last book? Yes, yes. Okay. And I think, uh, yeah, they, they, they did a great job with the last book. We're very uh, mm -hmm. uh, thrilled with how all that turned out. And, uh, and what was it? I was going to say something I forgot what I was going to say. So, at the printer, may or may not be printing. May or may not be printing. Good stuff. And, uh, of course, Blood Sorcery just came out, I think, yesterday, maybe the day before. Yes, it was before. yesterday. I, um, I, had, uh, I did have sent through, like, a week before a uh, review copy voucher, and something weird happened, so I got onto the guys at DriveThru and was like, I really, really want to read this, because we are doing this Google Hangout, so um, right. they got onto it, and last night sent me uh, a voucher, and I have read most of it between last night and now. And it's great. Uh, the new magic system in there um, obviously builds off what's been learnt with uh, Mage, so it's, it allows you to do, you know, cool rituals um, in a more creative manner, akin to like mm -hmm. Mage: The Awakening. Um, and it really offers a, a, a new look at um, at blood magic. Plus, it adds in those uh, Therondi. Uh, I'm mostly pronounced wrong because I've not read it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, so you've got these. Um, Sacrifices that you can do that are tied to uh, particular disciplines, and there's a whole load, a whole host of antagonists at the back as well, which is just really cool to have some ready-to-use characters that do some really cool blood magic. Um, and I'm already wondering how I can use these rules to update the cult of Mithras that appear in um, mythologies, all the way back in mythologies, because they yes. had their own kind of uh, series of abilities to use that are essentially blood magic. Mm-hmm. So, um, I remember uh, when when Russell and I were kind of talking through uh, uh, Blood Sorcery. It was you know he just kind of bounced ideas off me, and uh, I pointed him actually to the uh, um, individual witch hunters book because they have a very kind of simplified Mage the Awakening style magic system in there, so hundred individual people can run mages without having necessarily owning mm. mage. And, and Russell really kind of was inspired by that simple simplified system, and, and he kind of took his own direction with Blood Sorcery, but uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the kind of mage connection. There is certainly some resonance to that, but it actually came kind of via the individual interpretation of that system. Okay, cool. Ah. So then you have all kind of loops around. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of already now looking at it. I'll have to go back through some of the individual powers, and I think as a project for Darker Days, create a PDF on the Cult of Mithras 
approach for using yeah, the new cool. themes. I think it'd be, yeah, that'd be awesome. Really neat to do, and um, I don't know. I'll mostly have to re read through as many of the vampire books and find other bits of blood sorcery that could be recast. Because there's a whole section about um, particular. There's a sidebar about um, different bloodlines and how how the themes work for them and how for their kind of uh, uh, blood uh, blood sorcery. So I think there was a mention of the uh, which guys of the monolith. I can't remember the full title right now off the top of my head. Architects of the Monolith. Yeah, that's the one. So it talks yeah. about how their magic works. Um, but yeah, it's a really great book. I mean, it's a, no, it's a decent read, and everyone should get it and use it in Vampire. Glad you think so. I wish Russ could uh, could have made it today because he would yeah, love to yeah, have heard that right from him. Yeah. And yeah, the artwork in there is, is great. Some excellent new artwork in there that really gets across a lot of what the book's about. Excellent. I especially, especially like the picture of the guy tearing out his eyes. That's pretty nice. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Yeah, well, we didn't start off with that one. We didn't, we didn't choose to go with the cover on that one, but uh, it's, it's definitely <laughs> the, the good. cover. I really liked. I mean, I, I remember going yeah. through the approval process and I saw the cover, and I was just like, it was uh, one of those covers that really hit me for the first time in, in a while. It's like, wow, that's actually a really strong cover, and I really liked it. Good. And uh, you know, again, it's I think it's an excellent uh, book to add to um, perhaps you know for people that are playing um, Requiem for Rome as well because it's immediately applicable and can really enhance that game because you've got such room for even more cults of vampires in that setting. So right, cool, awesome, good stuff, and. Uh, coming up on September 27th to 29th is Atlanta by Night, the uh, mm -hmm. the, the petite masquerade this year. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I don't know, what can uh, White Wolf or Onyx Path tell us to expect? It's interesting because this is actually a fan-run uh, event because uh, mainly, uh, unfortunately with all the problems we had in October with all the layoffs, uh, CCP realized that we're not in a position to actually be able to manage and organize a Grand Masquerade this year, so we reached out to the fan communities and said, would you be willing to put together an event uh, and we will help you out with it? And they uh, really stepped up and have been uh, amazing in putting Atlanta by Night together. Um, so I only know kind of what they've been telling me. Uh, but I do know that uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, live action events there. One World by Nights and uh, the Camarilla and now the Mind's Eye Society are both putting together uh, their slate of, uh, of LARP events. Uh, Wrecking Crew is coming back again this year, putting together some uh, tabletop events. And like last year, they're uh, demoing the uh, Werewolf 20th adventure, right, Rich? Yep, the, the yeah, Skinner. Uh, the Skinner. Mm -hmm. um, and then the feedback from those games will go back to kind of help inform uh, uh, the final release of that particular SAS. Um, I don't believe Vekin's coming this year. Uh, we have uh, panels. Um, could be Actually, last time I took the schedule, I am on every single panel that we are producing, which is Excellent. hilarious. Um, so it's going to be uh, some uh, retrospective stuff. Um, Rich and I are going to do kind of uh, a retread of what we talked about at Gen Con about the Onyx Path stuff and the future of White Wolf. Um, I'm going to do some of my LARP theory panels, including a new one uh, called Playing to Lose. Uh, and there's going to be uh, at least one panel about uh, the WAD MMO, about people can let us know what the kinds of things they want to see in the World Arts MMO. Mm. Uh, and there's going, to be an, uh, there's going to be a party at the end. There's going to be... Um, uh, one hour of a CCP exclusive presentation, which even I don't know what we're going to talk about during that. 
so a lot of the stuff that people saw at Grand Masquerade in terms of, of the programming um, will be very familiar, I think. Uh, uh, Landabine definitely took the template of the Grand Masquerade and expanded on that. Um, it's not going to be uh, as luxurious, and certainly uh, because it's not New Orleans, it's not going to have the same kind of aesthetic as Grand Masquerade. But uh, for people who are really uh, want, enjoyed the programming and enjoyed uh, uh, the things that the fan community is putting together for the past two Grand Masquerades, I think they're going to find that same quality of programming at, at the show and have a really good time with it. Yeah, I should say that uh, with the uh, the Skinner, I'm trying to find a way to get Ethan Skem to actually sit in on one of those sessions with people and nice. play, actually play with them. It's all going to depend on his schedule. I'll be in on one of them. I know that. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to point out too is something that Justin's doing there. And I don't know, Justin, if you were going to jump in on that or not. Yeah, we've got uh, one of the panels that, that Rich and I are doing is actually an outlining session for Anarchs Unbound which is the book that follows Hunters Hunted 2, so it'll be out uh, later this year, or like at the end of the year, or uh, first quarter, depending on uh, how quickly we move on it. But uh, the outline for that book isn't done yet. We're actually saving up the outlining session to do at Atlanta by Night, and we're going to do it in real time with all of the feedback from the players who were there at the show. So as part of the panel, players will come by, um, we'll all sit together, and we'll, we'll hash out the outline for this book. Basically, this will be the creation session for what's going into Anarchs Unbound. I remember we talked about doing that last year at Grand Masquerade with V20 Companion, and then I think time just prevented us from being able to put that together, but are you still thinking about like having the projector and actually putting the outline up on the screen with Google Doc? Or... Yes, yes. Yeah, that'd be sweet. Well, that seems a little high-tech to me, Eddie. seems crazy. I-, I have the technology. I used it at Gen Con. I don't remember that. That's, yeah, that's true. You were drunk at the time. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also doing another panel on uh, player motivation, um, kind of like Eddie's panels, investigating the theory and the you know game craft behind the games itself. I'm doing one on you know why we make the decisions we do in Vampire, how we try to get players interested in playing the game, and of course uh, the Succubus Club party Saturday night. I'm playing that as well, so mm. come get loaded and uh, listen to me make some racket, play other people's music. Sweet, uh, cool. And can we expect uh, some of these panels to be recorded, perchance? Um, I'm going to try to uh, do what I did at Gen Con and bring my uh, poor microphone to as many of the panels as I can. Yep. Uh, we'll... it, and, and, you know, this, the extent that the, uh, the Gen Con panels, I mean, you know, we say they're a retread, but, you know, for a lot of people who didn't have a chance to either go through the, the, uh, the audio uh, visual tapes or the, weren't at Gen Con, I think it's a really good opportunity to find out exactly what is going on with White Wolf and, oh, no, and absolutely. What, is, what is this Daemonics path thing anyway. And certainly I know uh, last year uh, between uh, Gen Con and Grand Masquerade, we were able to kind of tweak and update a couple of things a- as information changed right. over the course of a couple of months. And I expect we'll probably do a similar pass this time around. We'll update the information slightly so that way even if you have seen it before, uh, it's oh, going to yeah. be slightly more accurate information, slightly more updated information. Yeah, and we'll be saying different things. We'll, we'll be using different insults. Right. Rich and I will uh, find different ways to bicker about things. And I can make fun of your ears. That's true. <laughs> nobody's ever done that before, ever, Rich. Ever. That's not going to stop me. <laughs> One last bit of news, which is not White Wolf related at all, uh, but the Facet brand name has returned. Uh, they're starting up a new yeah. company with uh, L. Ross Babcock as one of the founders, along with James Sutton from Red Brick LLC. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting stuff, but no Shadowrun and no Battletech coming out for them. That's going to stay with Catalyst Game Labs. Uh, the only... So basically, Earth Dawn. Yeah, Earth Dawn. Earth That's Dawn the only property they got. Uh, well, actually, Fading I think Sun. they have access. Fading Suns. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, uh, I'll just say Crimson Skies that you with somebody else too, so they don't have access to that either. Vor. No, that's true. Uh, nope. <laughs> they can redo nope. Vor. Mike Scuzzy Nelson is still trying still to make Vor 2.0. <laughs> oh, wow. Good Scuzzy, go! I remember Scuzzy. He was fun. Yeah, the, the Vaza IP situation is so complicated, someone at Gen Con explained it to me for half an hour, and I still don't understand it. <laughs> It's there's subcontracting and sub subcontracting and it goes in a circle at one point. It is it is insane. Yep. Good stuff. Just what I expected. Alright, cool guys. So that's it for the news, unless there's anything else to bring up. Anything? I think we can uh if someone after the show and tell. Alright, cool. Uh and then let's jump over to the uh secret frequency real quick. It's under the stairs. So we're going to be doing the Secret Frequency a little bit different this time. We're going to have three short urban legends from Japan. And I'll go over those real quick, and then uh, we'll see what kind of World of Darkness ideas we can come up with. So, uh, the first urban legend from Japan is the Kuchisaki Ona, the Slit-Mouthed Woman. So what happens, uh, according to legend in Japan, is children will be walking alone at night, and they may encounter a woman wearing a uh, flu mask. And this woman will uh, ask the children, Am I beautiful? If they answer no, uh, she kills them, shanking them with a pair of scissors. But if they answer yes, she removes her flu mask uh, and shows that her face has been slit ear to ear. If the, uh, the children say, Yes, she still is beautiful, they die. And if they say no, they also die. But uh, one story uh, has a child who says uh, sort of or maybe uh, just kind of confuses the woman just long enough to run away so uh, how do you guys think we could use this in a World of Darkness game well, straight off the bat, I think, guys, that the uh, it's uh, mainly children that have seen this uh, entity, I believe so I was thinking straight off World of Darkness Innocence so, and just uh, riffing off some of the ideas and just ripping off uh, the ring or the uh, grudge movies and using uh, a slightly different monster in a, a Japanese feel kind of uh, uh, World of Darkness Innocence. I would say it could act as an interesting uh, trufe. So it appears that she kills the children, but it's actually taking them away. Um, and maybe she does leave behind uh, fetches, and these fetches are uh, constructed from medical equipment and scissors. Hmm. Perhaps. Um, the one thing I remember reading in the um, Clive Barker novel Damnation Game is there's a scene where uh, this gambler is in uh, the ruins of Germany, I believe, uh, some part of Germany, and he finds a woman who is smiling at him, but as he gets closer, he noticed that this woman has actually had her lips completely removed, so mm. whenever her mouth is closed, she's constantly looking as though she's smiling uh, a very strange thing and you could kind of uh, perhaps connect this somehow with the ideas of that book and the uh, gambling going on and this uh, strange entity in Japan as well just to keep, keep kind of make a uh, more of a conspiracy theory uh, going on um, also going back to when we did spirits on the last on the uh, last show um Obviously, there's the thing about whether she's asking, am I beautiful, and how about now, and how will the children respond. Um, you could really work 
if you put in the effort, you can work out an interesting uh, bane or uh, you know there's a particular there is a particular weakness that right. if you say the right thing in response, then you are able to escape or even you know set her spirit to rest. Um, I mean, if you want to go with a with a ghost, maybe she's a victim. Uh, uh, well, is a the victim uh, that this ghost is of uh, is a uh, a nurse who works in a children's ward. So you could, you really build up quite a an extensive ghost story, which would fit into Geist quite happily, or any World of Darkness game really. Um, yeah, honestly, when I was hearing the description, I was, I was thinking a lot of uh, uh, it doesn't quite fit, but the, that she feels like a geist in terms of the you know the very kind of uh, iconic look and, and, and uh, the way she kind of conducts herself feels very geist-like to me. Hmm. Yeah, as an actual yeah, as a sin eater's own geist, it'd be yeah. kind of cool as that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one really uh, almost cliche or archetypal perhaps idea in uh, Vampire the Masquerade was the uh, like the beauty queen or the uh, the very beautiful person who is embraced by a Nosferatu uh, to kind of quell their pride. One thing you could do, and this, this will work both in Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Requiem, is uh, since vampires are very static, what will happen is they, uh, they're, they're trapped in the same form they were in when they were embraced. So if a vampire mutilates someone, uh, perhaps slitting them ear to ear, um, mm-hmm they'll be stuck like that for their entire unlife. So that's another uh, idea you could play with. True, or Zemecia Metamorphosis. I mean, you know, who, who's trying to get people to understand quote-unquote her vision of beauty. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know how, how getting kids to understand it and killing them. Zemecia, bad yeah, enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, Chris, would you like to uh, take the next? Yes. Uh, the next one is the Teke Teke. The Teke Teke is the ghost of a young woman who fell on a railway line and was cut in half by the oncoming uh, train. How a vengeful spirit, uh, but now, sorry, how, now a vengeful spirit, she carries a scythe and travels uh, on either her hands or elbows, dragging her upper torso, making a scratching or Teke Teke sound. Um, so obviously the name of this ghost comes from the onomatopoeia of how she moves. If she encounters anyone at night and the victim is not fast enough, she will slice them in half at the, at the torso to mimic her own disfigurement. And then she will sometimes become... They, the victim themselves will become a teke-teke. Versions of the legend include a schoolboy uh, walking home at night and spotting a beautiful young girl standing by a windowsill resting on her elbows. <laughs> okay, When she notices him, she jumps out of the window and onto the pavement in front of him, revealing herself to be no more than the upper torso with her entrails dragging out behind her. She then cuts the boy in two. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, that could be a really, really crazy vampire there, um, who obviously lost their lower half before they were embraced. You know, a perfect example of an embrace gone completely wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. Might make um, a uh, really cruelly supported ghoul, too. <laughs> That's yeah. actually true, yeah, because ghouls can't re- regenerate, so. Um, yeah, I think that one's, that's, again, I think all the things that we've said already pretty much work quite well. Again, you go with the victim of of this accident, and it could be a ghost, and again, you have to deal with the why this ghost is 
not yet uh, put to rest and the reasons for why they were uh, cutting half by the train or or whatnot. Um, the idea that she carries a scythe is again quite sinister. Well, it's a very kind of uh, 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 Asian peasant weapon. So uh, yes. it's yeah. and if you want to cut people in half, yes, you know, I mean, right. it's, it's a little bit of form follows function there. <laughs> Anyone else want to chime in with some ideas? Oh yeah, definitely, ideas? Chris. Chris. Mike, you've mostly thought about we, this one all night. I probably did. Alright, no, no, no. So, Chris, we need to make an SAS for this, because this is perfect. I mean, they basically, in this little description, we've got a scene already made. We just need to put stats yes. to it. And, you know, if you don't have anything prepared for the night, you could just use the scene as is. And you walk, characters walk down the street, yada, yada, yada. Oh my god! You know, only you could the top really torso of a woman jumps out of the window. Or you could really build the tension if they walk by the same place night after night and they just see this girl sat there looking out the window sill. Mm-hmm. Right, but here's what I'm also thinking. So, uh, with, uh, you know, sometimes you're playing D&D, you know, it's kind of a slow night, players are mm -hmm. not following what you want them to do, then you just have orcs kicking the door. All right, let's, let's do this, let's fight. That's what you could do with this. Characters just walking down the street, oh, get attacked by this crazy thing. That's what I'm thinking. One thing that strikes me from that write-up, what's happened to a lower half? Ooh. It was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but actually it might be interesting is if there's like a, a, some kind of mystical elements associated with like these, these scattered remains. You know, compiling them together is some kind of, of necessity, or if there's the opposite, she doesn't want to be whole, and so it's like, hey, we found your, you know, the rest of your parts of your body, and that doesn't, that makes things worse somehow. Right. Hmm. Or no, it could actually actually... for a boast. You know, it's the, it's, it's part of the locomotion, the centipede-style locomotion of a war ghoul. Mm, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Multiple. So the top half was just kind of thrown away, because that wasn't the important part. Yeah. I was just thinking, if you recombine the body parts, um, maybe it makes an interesting way of, first of all, putting the, the ghost to rest, but also as a way of creating a, a new Promethean, and so a new life. Mm -hmm. That's a... Mm -hmm. To give now, the Prometheans some justice for once and get some ideas <laughs> of that one. Um, it, uh, it does remind me a lot of the Malay legend of the Penanglin, yes. where the woman's yeah. head detaches from her body uh, mm -hmm. with the, the entrails dangling and the head flies off and does vampire things. So, right. um, like, I don't know. Have a nightclub. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they dance. Yep. <laughs> I think if you want some visual inspiration of what it would look like, I think there is such a scenario with, with a woman um, that appears in Beetlejuice, actually, sat next to him. She has her oh, legs separate yeah. from her body. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. And the, uh, final of our, our three mini secret frequencies is the Jimenkin. So the Jimenkin is a uh, it's a dog or dog-like creature, but it has a human face and they apparently appear around the uh, around Japan in urban areas at night. You can see them running uh, speedily along highways, trailways, uh, that kind of stuff. And they can also talk, um, but they're usually rude or just want to be left alone. We have um, them here in uh, North Carolina. They're called possums. <laughs> I thought you were going to say commuters. <laughs> I thought you were going to get on the Irish again. No, no, not the Irish again. 
Uh, yeah, but uh, but no, when I read that first thing, I thought it was uh, Fomori. Uh, totally, is like, you know, yeah. some kind of Fomori experiment, and you get that escaped. Or perhaps a Tremere homunculus, you know, some kind of blood-fed ritual that uh, you know has part of the Tremere attached to it, and that's the human face, and the rest of it is a kind of, uh, you know, construct or thaumaturgical creation. It's like that yeah, poor kind of uh, alchemist. Yeah, I was thinking maybe um, it could be like a Tremere attempt to try to make a, 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 a hellhound with human intelligence, and then it just grew the face as a result of that. Mm. Well, one thing I was thinking about um, is in uh, in Werewolf, well, either Werewolf, but specifically Werewolf the Forsaken, um, when two werewolves mate, you have that uh, spirit entity Go-go. that is created. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what if that doesn't happen, and this is what you get instead? Um, it adds more mystery to what's going on, and is still just as horrendous for the uh, female werewolf that went through with the process. The idea of the wolf-faced dog... Sorry, the human-faced dog gets... Yeah, wolf-faced uh, dogs, this is so ugly. Terrifying! You got a thing against huskies? What? <laughs> <laughs> It's a wolf yeah. with the head of a wolf and the body of a wolf. <laughs> That's uh, like an Esquilax. Like How unnatural! <laughs> so a were-werewolf. You've got things like uh, the Sphinx and the Manticore through um, northern, northern Africa and then down throughout Africa. Other animals featuring human face. I mean, the Manticore, a lion with a human's face and a scorpion's tail. What if these are all somehow related? Some sort of animals who desperately want to become human, and all they've managed is the face. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that way you get something that's nice and creepy and a bit weird, but there's no fundamental organization going on there, and it's very much not tied into one of the existing bits of mythology. And it's also just... a little sympathetic, too, because you, you can kind of empathize with the fact that they want to try to become human, even though exactly. they got horribly, horribly wrong. So it could just be oh, another, yeah, yeah. again, a, a strange form of cryptid, or um, right. Yeah. Hmm. Good stuff. So Thanks. is that it for the secret frequency? I think so. Sounds like it. All right, and with hmm. that, let's move on over to. I don't know. What we're going to call this segment Q and A, developer show and tells. What I have in the show notes. Let's go. Smash the brains and let's see what's inside. Um, <laughs> Let us babble for a while. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So for this segment, we don't really have a plan. I uh, asked each developer to show up with uh, at least one like main idea that they want to talk about. One uh, one cool thing. Maybe they're going to talk about uh, a book that's coming out. Maybe a specific mm-hmm. idea. Or maybe just give some insight into uh, how they like to develop. So, Stu should start. Uh, um, actually, oh, Ian's not here. Never mind. Stu should start. <laughs> that, 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 oh, Ian, your moment of glory. <laughs> he, yeah. It's gone forever. <laughs> We'll never see his like again. Mm. So, Stu, tell us stuff. Yeah, thanks for just throwing me under the bus there. No um, problem, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of, the, one of the things I'm working on just now is uh, that I'm getting Redlines back for is changing breeds for Werewolf 20. Um, that would be Werewolf the Apocalypse 20th Anniversary Edition, a uh, name Ooh. I really don't hope I have to repeat too often. That'd be it's 20. One those, it's one of those where you type it out and, you know, it's far, far too long, so I abbreviate it to Werewolf 20 whenever possible. 
for my own sanity. But yeah, changing breeds. I'm getting a lot of good stuff coming back. Um, what I'm kind of wanting to do with it is, um, I'm sure people have seen the blog entry on the World of 20 blog. If you've not, you should check it out because I've posted the outline as a Google Doc for people to read, comment on, see what they think. Um, so far, what we're doing is more along the lines of um, the Changing Breeds chapter that's, I say chapter, that was the meat of Player's Guide to the Changing Breeds. We want to sort of take that and beef it up a bit because they that was an Essentials sort of cut-down version of the breed books, and I want to inject a bit more into that because, you know, unless... I get insanely lucky and Onyx Path decides to throw lots of money my way. We're not going to get breed books anytime soon. See how it goes, man. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Until then, obviously, this book is going to have to do people. But a lot of the time, what you got in Player's Guide to the Changing Breeds for Werewolf the Apocalypse Revised was a cut-down, slimmed-down version. You know, the breed books were available. To be fair, they still are, thanks to the glory of print-on-demand. But Changing Breeds 20 should really be your one-stop shop. It's where you go first to find out information on the breeds. And so we've been really collating information running right the way back to the first, second edition player's guide because there was uh, one of the really rather critical rights for the Noetia was printed in the first and second edition player's guides, referenced there in the Noetia breed book, and then referenced then the bit in Player's Guide to the Changing Breeds fundamentally says, see the Noisha Breed book. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's nice. a lot of books ago. Yes. So I've, I've dug that up and I've got uh, Holden Shearer, who's working on the gifts and rights. He also did the gifts and rights for Will the Apocalypse 20th Anniversary Edition. We're in like three days. Back. It was insane. It was very fast. Yeah. <laughs> that guy can just churn out mechanics like nobody's business. He is some sort of machine. He really is. The best thing, he's managed to cram more new toys for each breed into the spaces, in some cases, than they've ever had before. You know, mm. the Ayaba, the Wear Hyenas, they're getting a write-up. They're getting more gifts and rights than they've ever had, which is just fantastic, because they're one of these breeds that were originally introduced in, I think, the Bastet breed book. They could have been there in one of the player's guide entries for the Bastet. I can't remember just now. Sounds right. Yeah, they they were there and they were this uh, sort of downtrodden group crushed under the heel of uh, Black Tooth in Africa and they became an immediate fan favorite. You know, people just people just love these guys. They love the, going for and supporting the underdog. And so we're really bringing them back. We're showing them a lot of love. So, yeah, that's uh, Changing Breeds 20. We we do have um, more than just the Changing Breeds write-up. You know, we've got the setting chapter and um, a secret that was in the outline, and I'll go into here again. We have information on the lost breeds. You know, they had maybe a paragraph elsewhere, as how the Mokole remembered them, but uh, we're even going so far as to give them form stats. And um, John Sneed has worked up some really interesting story hooks on how you could actually bring individual instances of the lost breeds back to a modern day 
game of Werewolf the Apocalypse, while not sort of having it be, oh yes, we are the special snowflakes who are here to save everyone. Great, we've managed to rescue the one last living example of this breed who is about to die horribly. I have to play that one. In keeping with the tone of the whole thing. Right. Like the people want to play the last White Howler or whatnot. Having that ability available is is important. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... For for a long time, there was this whole idea that, oh, no, no, we shouldn't provide any information on the Lost Breeds because that would just encourage people and games would be flooded with the last White Howler and Mm -hmm. the last this, the last that, and why not? Yeah, that's just something that uh, Russell and I talked about a lot when uh, we were working on the V20, because uh, he was nice enough to take over the um, uh, minor bloodlines for V20, and we talked a lot about that, is that there very much was this tone of, yeah, they're stats, but players really shouldn't be playing these, and we very much went and leaned into the why the fuck not, you know, it's your game, right. you know, do, do what you think is awesome. And so some of the, when you get into the, the minor uh, bits of the... Um, or I should say the smaller bits of the classical darkness canon, you do run into this kind of a lot of hand waviness. And so I know at least from my end, it was a challenge to kind of convert those into something that's a little more substantive. It sounds like you're combining the same thing as like taking these kind of things and really giving them substance that players can, can dig into because they're going to dig into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, I, I and we've talked about this a lot too, Eddie, is I, I really don't like the idea that you're you're sort of legislating how you think it should be played to the players. Right uh, th- through the rule set, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 their game. I mean, you shouldn't be produ- providing rules and then saying, "Yeah, here are some rules for it, but don't do this because it's bad." Well, if it's bad, why have you bothered producing the rules in the first place? Right. You know, if you're going to give rules for something, enjoy it. Give mm-hmm. people a reason to use them. Certainly. And, and some of that, though, is also a change, I think, in, in RPG culture. I mean, because if oh, you yeah. look at the late 80s, early 90s, there was still very much the idea of, you know, what the developer says is what is, is gospel, and everyone must abide by it, this one true rule set. Uh, uh, D&D certainly was very guilty of this, but other games kind of got caught up in this, and I think it's only been the past 15 or so years where the RPG culture has kind of shifted to this much more homebrew is the default assumption than it was before. Well, look at look at the for for second edition vampire the uh, the player's guide there had the powers listed for you know the level ten disciplines. Mm-hmm. So you know obviously the assumption there is that a player is going to be an antediluvian. Right. And, you know if that's if you don't want them being antediluvians, just don't print the level ten powers. Right, but there, but I know that I remember that being a little radical at the time when it came out. Though it was like, wait a minute, why is this here? Because this should be sequestered away in the storyteller section. This should be a hidden bit. And the fact that Vampire kind of stepped out and said, you know, hey, this is totally do what you want. But even then, it's like you know, it's it gets entrenched. And so when you have things like you know the um, uh, Salubri or, or these these lost tribes, it's like you know, there's still this kind of zeitgeist of yeah, well, you know. You don't really want to play that, and so it's only been, I think, a fairly recent thing culturally to say, no, seriously, it's it's okay if you want to play Last White Howler, go nuts, be awesome with it. Well, that that to me also marks one of the big changes in how we're developing these games. A lot of times now, you know, we are asking for player feedback. How do you guys want to use this? I mean, I remember mm-hmm. back in the late '90s and early 2000s where you know I was very much pushing play vampire like this, as opposed to now. It's mm-hmm. like. Hey, here's a bunch of ideas. Do what you want with them. Right. 
is this why we're now seeing uh, things in, say, like uh, the new uh, Children of the Revolution? Is it the uh, Apatia character? I think she's uh, a Cappadocian that is responsible for the bringing back of the uh, Harbinger to the Skulls, who has been around for uh, thousands of years, but just knocked into Torpor. Now she's running around with a Sabbat. If that's what you want to do, you could just go out and do it, because if you want to use a Cappadocian, because the rule set's there, even if it's a Dark Ages kind of rule set, you just bring it forth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, kit bash all you want. We've got the rules for the uh, you know for the Harbingers of Skulls. They're back in they're in the in the appendix of the B twenty core book. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, largely yes. Here's all these pieces that are disparate and that you know we've kind of done some smoke and mirrors work with. Uh, but if you want to use them, here's a way you can introduce it. You know, here's a way you could let a player play. Or here's someone who uh, you know if you want to do this reveal in your chronicle, you know, turn it loose. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, just, I think the only weird part about that, and Eddie, Eddie, you're probably better suited to think about this than most, uh, is when it gets into live action and stuff like that. Doesn't isn't that a little bit of a problematic then? Uh, it is because um, one thing that I know the the big organizations are are currently kind of struggling with is uh, how to handle a, a panoply of choices. Um, a perfect example of this is Requiem in Mind's Eye Society. Uh, early on, they went very much by, okay, there's all these books out, and we have to use all these books because that was the culture that Masquerade was presented in. was like going, it's all metaplot and it's all there. And you know, so if you have a gazillion bloodlines, then all those bloodlines must be available. And if you have you know, all these pieces, they must all be a piece. And Requiem started to feel the strain of that, I think, a few years in. And uh, it's something that I you know I've talked a lot to Requiem players about, and like you know, hey, you no, know, this is really is meant to be a customizable thing, and, and culturally it was it was complicated because how do you communicate to thousands of players right. when we're all working on this default assumption? Um, and it's something that I'm watching those organizations kind of uh, of struggle a bit with. What more by night, less so because they've stayed pretty firm to classic world darkness, and and they've had a number of years to kind of get a very solid sense of what their chronicle is. Uh, the Minds Eye Society, because they're now in this cycle of doing uh, a regular three to five year chronicles, um, getting into the idea of okay, we're actually going to have a team built and put out documents that state, okay, Requiem for us is X, Y, and Z. These are the pieces we're using for Requiem. We're not using anything else. And for us, this is our definition of the Chronicle. Um, but the scale of it, too, seems to have informed that a lot. Like, I remember when I, I bought the uh, that box set, the first box set for the Masquerade that came with mm -hmm. the plastic fangs and the blood capsules. Yep. That was basically like a, you know, a murder mystery kind of thing, you know, where they assume... Yeah, you play with 20 people. Six people were going to come over for dinner, and who done it, and that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, holy smokes! It's this four thousand player chronicle that needs right. to be really consistent. Exactly, and, and uh, that's one thing that uh, certainly I've been a strong advocate of, and one of the reasons why I've been doing things like my my LARP theory panels at various conventions is because live action specifically does it's a unique art form and not only do the rules need to be uh, uh, accurate and, and flexible enough for that art form but also I think that the backgrounds needs to adapt for realities of that you know uh, in, in a tabletop game 
depending on the kind of game you're running, the odds of a Justicar walking into your game and telling you what to do are pretty, pretty minimal. In a live-action game, that, that's probably going to happen when you have 4,000 people. You know, the, the Justicars are characters that are persistent and need to make sense from game to game and are forces that are around on a regular basis, things that you don't think about in your typical tabletop structure. So certainly there's a lot of that. And so when we talk about things like uh, uh, V20, I know that uh, Justin, Rich, and I talked a fair bit early on about how does LARP fit into this? I mean, not necessarily the rules. We knew we didn't have the room for getting into the Minds at Theater rules, but in terms of, like, how can we work this in a way that doesn't invalidate some of those concerns? Right. And, and that's I think some of the meta-plot agnostic idea came from was out of respect for that, you know, th these people have been running these Chronicles for sometimes Master 10, Chronicles, 15 yeah. years, and we don't want them to say, oh, well, our game's not completely invalid now. You know, flip the table, we're out of here. We don't want we didn't want to have that feeling. A lot of it, too, was, you know, we, we printed... Gehenna, you know, we've, we've told our story. Right. So, you know, now in the age where people are able to communicate across, you know, ge geography means nothing anymore. I mean, look at us. We're talking in, you know, Australia and in England and, in, you know, I, someone's from Germany. But mm. our story, you know, we've told it. So now, yeah. you know, players, use these pieces, tell the stories you want to tell. Exactly, certainly. Uh, and uh, while the live-action culture is certainly an easy way to kind of point to and say this is the exact thing of it, it extends to uh, uh, the chats, it extends to forum-based right. play, it extends to tabletop play. Um, even people who write fan fiction based on Vampire the Eternal Struggle, which is totally a thing I didn't know about until a few weeks ago. You know, uh, there's all of these different masquerade slices that overlap heavily with other parts of it. And so... Definitely with, with, with Vampire 20, there was a lot of let's be respectful of all of these different interpretations. And then I know that uh, uh, Stu and the crew, uh, we all work together on World 20th, was very much kind of the same thing. It's like going, you know, where, you know there's there's the rage enthusiasts. Uh, there's, again, the strong uh, uh, live action chat forums for, for Apocalypse. Let's do that same thing for them so they can play through their own version of the Apocalypse or ignore it. So, you know, play through their own war of rage because it is such a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, interesting that you bring up chat, because we have Ian Watson here, who has been working on the uh, New Bremen chat, uh, yeah, bringing that back. Mm, um, so, Ian, what, uh, since you're kind of, I'm not sure the exact structure that you're going to have there, but you're kind of going to be managing um, the, the New Bremen chat itself, uh, what are you going to do about, you know, once, once uh, somebody sneaks in, like, gets their character approved, who's Angus, the last white howler who works at a McDonald's or something? <laughs> no, I did, uh, well, I'm mostly taking on uh, an administrative capacity where I run the website, but I don't really have a whole lot of input into day-to-day -day running of the chat. Uh, so, theoretically, the werewolf storytellers wouldn't allow that sort of thing. If they do, they have to deal with it. <laughs> it is your fault. Okay, much. fair enough, fair enough. Behind the scenes, then, uh, for the, the chat, there are people working, the storytellers are working to kind of distill, uh, I'm thinking more for, like, New World Stunners, they're working to distill uh, a particular core game from from maybe the core book and then some of the supplements, or uh, I can imagine that you need to really work hard to make a consistent setting that has enough diversity to satisfy players, yet not introduce too many things from different books which were never imagined to be combined in crazy ways. Well, we are basing it on the uh, the old White Wolf chats right. that used to run on the official sites. Okay. So, like, it's not exactly 
So New Bremen, for example, isn't going to follow exactly from New Bremen because the apocalypse hit New Bremen, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But it, it does sort of take a like a 20th anniversary sort of look to things where we take the best of what happened, take the general feel of it, and then move forward from there. So with the, um, the World of Darkness moderated chats, not New Bremen, um, we are trying to focus on, on the core games, Mm -hmm. uh, just you know, just to provide a, a, a low, as low a bar for entry as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if if someone has like a really fancy merit or a legacy or whatever that they want to use from a further game, they can talk to a storyteller about that. Okay. So it's all in the storyteller's hands if it all goes <laughs> weird. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's one of the nice things about chat. Uh, playing by chat, you know, is, is is you do have that flexibility. Good stuff. Uh, so we got a little off topic because we were talking to Steve about, uh, or uh, Stu about uh, W20. Um, so, so Stu, uh, you are a New World, you were a New World of Darkness writer primarily. That's when you came on board, I believe, correct? Yeah, my first, my first actual professional book was uh, Lore of the Forsaken, which was, uh, we started writing that um, pretty much when Werewolf the Forsaken was in a sort of redline production type time. But the only reason I got that gig was because I'd been tremendously active on various uh, forums and websites talking up Werewolf the Apocalypse a lot um, all throughout. You know, I did some brief sort of band work um, if I mention the Trinity stories, I was handbook. I know Ian's going to start beaming over there. The <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yes. And rightfully so. But, you know, I, I did some of that, and um, I was in touch with Ethan just via email, and based on what I'd, based on some writing samples I'd sen sent him and what I'd done on the forums and the chats and, and the websites, based on, you know, being a, Fundamentally, a rabid apocalypse fanboy. I got the job. I got the oh, just rabid. right on uh, on Forsaken. So yeah, I know. I know my name's only ever been in Forsaken books, but people shouldn't mm -hmm. think I'm just uh, coming to apocalypse new. Well, I'm just a little curious because you uh, you mentioned that you have John Sneed uh, working for you on Changing Breeds. Do you have a lot of other um, kind of like old World of Darkness writers uh, working for you? And like, how does that kind of work since? Do you find any challenges with that, uh, since you primarily worked on New World of Darkness books more recently? Um, yeah. Not, not really challenges. Um, I think, you know, you give, you round up a bunch of writers, whether they've worked on the old world of, world of Darkness, whether they've worked on the new, and you get them the outline, sort of get everyone built up to know roughly where they're coming from and where you're aiming at for the book. Um, one of the things that's been running through the outline that uh, originated in Ethan's Bible, as it were, for World 20th, is um, to recapture some of that sort of more heavy metal feel of um, the sort of first and second edition World of the Apocalypse, you know. And so for Changing Breeds, I did make sure in the outline, yeah, mm -hmm. I want to get a feel of holy fuck! I can play a weir shark. Mm -hmm. I guess anyone who doesn't some sort of bizarre sense of joy when they realize they can be a dude who turns into a shark. 
I don't know. I don't know how these people can live without without that <laughs> destroying their lives. Yep, I think uh, I think that's one of the great things. Actually, we mentioned this at Gen Con that um, the the original you know the original question is you know how how about working these new guys with the with the old crew and I think that's one of the great things about the going back on these anniversary editions is we have this opportunity you know Stu absolutely loved Apocalypse he starts working on Forsaken and now he's a chance to work on Apocalypse uh, again and uh, at the same time being able to work with guys who were primarily Apocalypse guys uh, writers and creators is is that mix of the of the, of the experienced and and uh, and you know I've got 14 uh, Apocalypse books under my belt pal sort of uh, writers with uh, with guys who just absolutely just came into it and enjoyed these guys writings you know is is and was inspired by them it's it's I think one of the strengths we're bringing to the to the new anniversary editions all right so Mr. Achille what's up Vampire the Masquerade. What do you want to tell us about it? Any uh, any cool stuff coming up? Any, anything you want to highlight? Uh, just this morning, Rich and I were talking about uh, doing the video for the Hunters Hunted 2 Kickstarter. Um, so that is in the hopper right now. Um, the book itself, of course, is going to be available in PDF and POD on drive-thru, as is usually the case. Um, but we are looking at uh, taking some player feedback into account and getting them... Um, there's been some requests for a new look or some new reward tiers on the uh, prestige print runs, so we're kicking around some ideas there. Uh, so that's the weird part of making the video is we don't yet know what that's <laughs> going to look like, <laughs> but we're supposed to make you interested in it. So uh, it will easily be the best thing you've ever seen. I can, well, Rich can guarantee that. Rich, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I'm making a promise, uh, you know, in that in that regard. That um, I th I think what you know what we're really trying to do is 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 uh, we we recognize that with all the kickstarters that are coming out now uh, just from us it's going it, to you know and they are they are expensive to to kind of get into a good reward tier uh, that there should be some other ways to do this so you know uh, uh, we were kind of with the first two books really wanting to stay to uh, match V twenty. Which is a the whole reason we went to Kickstarter was because it's just a very expensive uh, cover treatment. Um, with uh, Hunters Hunted, we want to still go deluxe. We still want to make it really cool, but we're going to look at not matching V um, twenty or the other two books this time around, and maybe doing it a little bit more like. And this is sort of the the visual target, a little bit more like something that a hunter would have, as opposed to a Dark Lord of the Night. Oh, nice. So a little bit more like the Hunter workbook or journal or something like that, but still keeping it, you know, still high end. Uh, uh, and you definitely are getting a deluxe edition, but it's it's um, it's not. The idea is to bring down the goal uh, target uh, because we won't have to have uh, as expensive a, a print run, and uh, and that should also pass on for anybody who wants to get the, you know a copy through the Kickstarter. It should also mean that you know we could we could lower how much uh, that particular reward tier would be at. And I think I hope that that's um, that that eases some of the the pain that some people are feeling from, oh my God, another you know, really expensive deluxe book. Um, hopefully this one will will be still cool, but not not nearly as expensive to jump in on. Yeah, definitely, still like striking and still you know almost an artifact feel from the world itself. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So there's that in the works right now. 
Um, obviously, like we talked about earlier at Atlanta by Night, we've got the um, community uh, outlining session for Anarchs Unbound. And thereafter, I, I actually have some writers on tap who uh, I know who I want to use to write that book, but they have no idea what they'll be writing yet. So you know, that'll, be, that'll be a good thing to get going. <laughs> and uh, thereafter, we move into um, the next year's uh, series of titles. And um, I don't know that those have actually been yep. discussed yet. They're on the schedule. People know about yep. them up, up through August. Okay, um, so I hope to in engaging the community with uh, Anarchs Unbound, you know, to keep working with them as we go into the uh, book on um, kindred rituals and you know all, all the titles for the next year. Um, I want to do more and more with the players, and uh, you know that's sort of a, a personal challenge I've got to do for myself because <clears throat> you know I, I simply just don't have the time with my day job that I used to have to devote to it. So it's kind of you know. Re-engage myself and re-engage the community with it. So that's really what I'm looking forward to in the next year is you know getting more vampire books for how people are playing vampire. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Um, so when you're when you're designing these vampire the masquerade books as well, uh, do you consider how they might play into uh, vampire the requiem as well? Because I'm always a big proponent of how you can like kind of mix and match the two settings and systems. Um, is that something you think about, or you just say, uh, storytellers can figure that out if they want? It doesn't make a huge amount of, um, it doesn't inform, you know, Russell and I aren't in super amounts of communication as to, you know, what of this can go into the other titles. Uh, but I think that's actually a testament to sort of the creativity of the storytellers themselves is they see this, you know, like we were talking about earlier in the, uh, the you know, with the three different Asian legends, how can we do this in different games? That's that's sort of the thing. My my job is not to tell you how to play a game. It's to kind of ask questions. You know, if this situation came up, what would you do with it? And then you know, from there, my work is done. And you know, the story to, or the troops take that all onto themselves. So if a storyteller wants to take an idea from one game and bring it into another game, that's that's awesome. You know, that's a testament to you know how flexible an idea is. That being said, um, we don't have like uh, corralled sets of writers. We don't have like these people only write classic world of darkness. These people only write new world of darkness. There's a lot of going back and forth across various projects, and so I think that some of the, also as writers move back and forth between Masquerade and Requiem, you know, there may be just thoughts and ideas they have that go into each of them. I know, like I'm working on a Requiem project now and having to kind of go back and rewire my brain after a year and a half of being firmly in masquerade and kind of like, okay, this Requiem has a very different aesthetic, a different feel, but there's still subconscious things I'm sure I'm bringing back from having thought about masquerade so much recently that I'm, I'm bringing into a Requiem product. And when I was working on B20 originally, you know, it's like we had, we were so heavily into uh, Requiem is that kind of, I think, I think there's some of that that kind of goes back and forth and, and trails a bit on a subconscious level as, as we're kind of, as writers thinking about, uh, explicitly the differences between the products, but there's going to be just connections and interests and ideas that could work with either or will inspire us in either direction. So uh, I don't, I don't. There's certainly like, like uh, uh, Justin said, there's no um, conscious effort of that and no conscious communication. But I think just at, since we're now one big group uh, uh, of, of freelancers, there's going to be some unconscious perhaps connections between those. And I think really to to really take a look at that. Um... You know, it, it, it's an interesting sort of it, a thing, and I think when people are creative, they, they find those connections. But in a very real sense, Requiem and Masquerade are two very different games and, right. and really need to be treated and respected for, the, for what they 
both are great to, to do uh, at the table. And if you can find ways to, to blend those two things, and we did a bit of that and suggested a bit of that with the Vampire Translation Guide, mm. I think that, yeah, that, there's, that, that's phenomenal. Have fun and mix it and have a great time. But I think there's also people who very much want a masquerade experience or very much want a Requiem experience. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a totally also legitimate and awesome way to play um, uh, those particular games. So, no, certainly. Know, I, there's, there's definitely not a, there's definitely not any attempt to make those two mesh um, on our end. No, this but is like, I'm, like I'm you said, more... it, it it comes in. Right, it, it's more on the lines of, hey, I just saw this episode of True Blood that you know really inspired me to work on something, and I happen to have a masquerade product on my plate, so there's a connection there. I mean, it, it, it's much more kind of a step back that, of I guess, yeah. modern vampires have a certain kind of commonality that it's going to inspire right, anything, right. and it's it's what's on my plate today. You know, that's it's a rec, it's a requiem product, so that's going to go into requiem versus that's going to go into masquerade. So yep, yeah. Well, my opinion's always been that you know, vampire the masquerade, vampire the requiem, both started with this. They start at the same point. You know, you've got the uh, the Prince Society and that sort of political uh, structure, and then they just diverge from there. Um, so there's always just that little bit of overlap with, like, kind of the, the basic mm-hmm. structure as well and the basic core Certainly. ideas. Certainly. I mean, for me, I kind of view the two games as almost like if you were to illuminate the stage with just a, a very different kind of filter. And mm-hmm. it, 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 I mean, that's a, it's a very... <laughs> kind of pretentious way to put it, but it, they do feel completely different in execution, and uh, for me, when I first ran uh, Vampire the Requiem, maybe, I think it was maybe about, I think it was possibly three years after it was released, and mm-hmm. just, I had a bunch of players who had played Masquerade for so many years, and then you hit them over the head with, well, this city's controlled by the Carthians, and this is how they work, and they're just like, after the first session of being introduced to the, the chairman of the city, and he's has his own mm-hmm own society and they were just like this is a different game this feels so different and it just has a different vibe and yeah they are very different games I think one of the things I was looking at on the release re- on the uh, release schedule and quite it'll be quite interesting to see how that book turns out because I've just read Blood Sorcery is the um, in April next year we have Rights of the Blood so I'm quite excited to see what turns up in that book and what can be ported back over in, into Requiem really and what interesting ideas were in there. So, yeah, kind of excited for that book. Good. Anyway, if there's any anything uh, Justin wants to talk about, Rights of the Blood, because it's on the list there. Just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's too, it's too <laughs> far in the future. But I can see there's some... We're going to see the Talmare uh, return with some street rituals. So, I don't know. I've, street rituals sounds cool. Yeah, there's uh, one of the things, when I was working on the World of Darkness MMO, the uh, lead designer on it, Jan Seelen, um, was always talking about, if you've seen the movie adaptations of the uh, Nightwatch books, mm-hmm. one of his favorite scenes was in the very beginning where um, they uh, there's a ritual occurring and someone has to drink this shot of vodka and there's like a drop of blood in the vodka and there's just a very like folky sense of, you know, how would this look if it was a fairy tale brought into a modern environment? And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, some of the, some of the mar- remarks I've been making in the Hunter's book, because we're working on the Numina in there, is that some of these Numina feel a little more fantasy than modern horror, so I've asked the writer there to kind of inflect them with more modern horror. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I really, really want to do with uh, uh, the Rituals book is... Mm-hmm. You know, show these weird and mysterious and horrific societies, but in particular how they relate to the modern world. 
You know, that's especially a challenge when you've got things like Shemisi who are very unchanged by the modern world. You know, what does their mysterious power look like in a context where, you know, a lot of it hasn't changed since you know, the 1100s or something. And actually, when uh, I first saw the, the the kind of pitch for that through Rich, I started thinking of like uh, John Constantine and Hellblazer Vertigo stuff, where it's like you know you have you know uh, Constantine taking the, these these older kind of ideas and, and in very kind of uh, uh, street level hip modern at that time, uh, 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 updating of this, these magical practices. And so I was like, when I saw street magic, I was like, I would really love to see that kind of Hellblazer feel to to masquerade as well. So that's really yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, it really blends the kind of the um, the ideas behind the hollow ones from back in Mage of the Ascension. With again, they yeah. take the the classic rituals of say the Order of Hermes and really grunge them up. And rather mm -hmm. than drinking from a chalice, it's a it's a cup that says I hate work or something stupid yeah. on that. Yeah, cool. But they, their tra their magical tradition is very very flexible. As, yes. as compared to vampires, which is much more static, which is, you know, here's this thing that literally came out of, you know, a 13th century diabolist's practice. What does this look like now? Right. I'm a little curious about how the the interaction between Onyx Path and White Wolf is really going to work. Um, maybe, uh, Eddie, could you give some, some insight into the kind of new approval process and how that's going to be working out? Um, well, actually, we've well, been doing really the approval cool. process for many, many months now. Okay. Um, since January. Since January, yeah, um, and and really, it comes down to Rich and I talk at each other about once a week, and we trade emails every now and then. And uh, how the process normally works is, um, uh, um, Rich makes the product up to the point where we would, Rich and I originally would have been. Looking to start putting it into uh, print-on-demand or PDF production. Uh, then it comes to uh, CCP, and we uh, t have ten days to look it over and, and offer any kind of uh, of points of concern. Um, but really, before that, there's kind of more of an informal. I I look it over myself just from having years of working with Rich on these projects and just saying, hey, what about this? What about this? You know, minor points. Uh, and then we offer some comments, uh, changes that are critical. You know, we, we feel they have to be made or made, which are very, very infrequent these days. Um, and then changes that we, you know, more from an experienced eye of, hey, have you thought about this? You know, you may want to consider looking into this one piece, but it's up to you, it's your call. And then it's done. Um, if it's a particularly uh, uh, unusual project, you know, there might be a couple of rounds of that, but I can't think of anything. I think most of that was just early on as we were learning the process and, and figuring things out. Um, nowadays, it, it's been pretty pretty fast and, and pretty easy to kind of just take things around and get things going forward. Mostly, it's just getting the time of getting the stakeholders to sit get down together. and talk it through. Um, uh, that, but that's mainly right now what I've been doing is um, I've been kind of the, the, the liaison as where Rich has someone he can always, knows he can always talk to to get information in, and then I go to the stakeholders and get them, kind of lean on them and say, hey, I, you know, we really need to get this moving, we need to get this moving forward. I know you guys are really busy making this video game, but can you give me 15 minutes to give me a thumbs up or thumbs down on this particular piece or whatever? Uh, so it, it's not a... The only formal partition of it is that CCP has 10 days to approve or deny a particular project. But it's, it, it's really not that formal. We have a, Rich and I have a weekly meeting, and then I have a weekly meeting with the stakeholders as well uh, later on in the week. And that's pretty much it. We just talk things through, and uh, we're now at the point where it's getting pretty smooth. Um, so as we, huh? 
So far, so good. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been pretty positive. And one thing I'll say is that the stakeholders are entirely people who either used to work on the White Wolf RPG stuff or who are RPG fans. So these are not just random X suit in the office is makes his opinion known on things. These are people who understand how RPGs work, very passionate about the RPG quality, uh, and making sure that it's 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 done well. And we, you know, we made a decision to, to to go the Alex Path route. It was mainly because we knew Rich would give this stuff the the, the respect and quality that it absolutely needed. Um, so we can focus on our core competencies at the company. So it's been it, it's been a long road, and it's been a lot longer than any of us wanted it to be. But you know, we're, we're I think ultimately this is going to be a really good relationship. Cool, interesting. And uh, Rich, uh, one thing we commented on in our uh, uh, two episodes ago is that we noticed mm-hmm. that you know there's definitely a uh, an increase in the in volume of products that be coming out. Uh, three products a month typically compared you to you guys like, didn't even know why at the time. We had we had we hadn't been talking about Onyx. Yep. 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 Like, how's that going to work? Uh, well, it, it hasn't yet. Yep. So when it does, well... <laughs> <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> it's, it's it's you know it's it's why I keep emphasizing that the uh, the release schedule is our intention, not necessarily something that we're 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 going to hit all the time. And right now, again, we had a, a fair number of, of of labor pains getting us to where we are today. Um, with with setting up how things needed to function and uh, and and you know so so some of the books got caught up in that um, but we're getting closer and closer to our release dates as uh, as things go by some of the major things like uh, Werewolf Twenty and uh, and Mummy have shifted a little bit more but that's a, that's less internal issues and more other things popping up uh, that. Um, that I think it would impact the quality if we were to just go, ah, we've got to get this out right now, so slam it, slam it, slam it. Um, I don't want to do that. I want to get out the highest quality possible books to, to everybody. I think, the, I think the fans deserve those. And, uh, and we don't really want to go back to the same sort of crazy, oh, my God, we can't do this um, because we don't have the time sort of situations that we had back in the day. Right. Uh, you, know, we, we, you know, we call the publishing treadmill. Uh, so we, we, we definitely want to stay away from that. Uh, but the thing, that, you know, the, really the thing to remember is is that we've got different groups of very talented people working on these different projects. So, uh, you know, Stu's got his crew, and some of the writers overlap because you know they're professional writers and they're trying to get gigs with different projects so they keep themselves employed. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the the main people involved are. Um, are very focused on, on doing the thing that they're doing. So Justin has his writers and, and Justin's team is working on stuff. Um, Stu has his guys and, uh, and you know, further on as we get, we get more guys involved, um, it, it'll do the same thing. Russ with his vampire crew. Uh, so in, in a sense, it's actually freer and in somewhat easier. There's a lot of logistics that goes into it. It's a lot easier to go down a hallway to a guy who's in the next office over and talk about something than it is to, See if he's available. Hey, dude, are you around? Hello, are you there? Hey, man. You know, like a couple hours later, he comes back and notices that I was trying to Skype message him. Hey, what's going on? You know. Okay. So uh, the logistics of keeping those communications going are a little bit more intense. But uh, uh, I think overall, having these these sort of cells of creative people working on the different lines is uh, is actually a pretty good way to do it. And what's actually interesting, uh, uh, you mentioned kind of the 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 the, the overlap. Um, so for the first time in, in several years, I'm actually now pretty much full-time. Well, not full-time freelance. I mean, but I, I'm not 
developer anymore. I'm, I'm primarily freelancing, and um, Rich and I talked about process projects where I may develop on in the future, but my full-time job now is working on the World Arts MMO. Um, but I still do freelance, and like my last four assignments I could think of for Onyx Path was um, I did a uh, Masquerade project for Justin, then I did a New World Darkness story for McFarland's, um, I, I'm now working on a Requiem story for Russell, and then I'm going to be doing some word count for Stu for Apocalypse. And I'm seeing a lot of freelancers are moving into that mode of, you know, hey, I, I want to work with you on this cool project. It, it's less game line targeted and more talent targeted, I, right. I've been seeing. It's like going, hey, this guy would be great. You know, John Steedra is really fantastic with high mythic stuff, so let's get John Steedra on mythic stuff, whether, whatever game line it is. Or Holden Shearer is fantastic, cranking out really solid mechanics, so whether he's on Exalted or whether he's on Apocalypse, we need to get Holden Shearer on this project. So uh, I'm seeing that, you know, while we have fantastic people like Stu and Russell and Justin who keep the vision for the game line solid for Rich, mm -hmm. uh, there's this other tier of the freelancers who are, uh, I'm seeing a lot more kind of based around what their, their voice is and where their skill set lies, rather than where before in the past it would be much more told into okay, well, you're always going to get vampire stuff. You're always going to get right. you know uh, werewolf stuff. Interesting, interesting. Um, now moving over more towards the uh, new world of darkness. I know, unfortunately, we didn't get any of the uh, NY developers on for this show. But mm -hmm. uh, one thing I was curious about, and maybe uh, actually Stu can give some insight into this, is uh, mm -hmm. on the release schedule. There was nothing officially announced for uh, Werewolf: The Forsaken, which I know is a very tightly designed game, and most of the uh, core ideas have been covered um but could you give any insight into like uh maybe some guys are thinking about stuff maybe some people are making pitches or is it just kind of uh more on the back oh there's now? some pitches okay <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know yeah there's some pitches coming up i'm currently working on one myself um exactly you can probably see with uh the god machine chronicles and the strix chronicles for the new world of darkness core line and uh, for Requiem, there's a sort of refocusing of the of the basic sort of what the game's about to provide a more targeted play experience from the off. And I'm kind of wanting to do. I'm kind of wanting with my pitch. I'm not sure if you know, Rich is gonna don't don't spoil talking. anything for me now. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm just going to say I kind of want to. Forsaken generally has. A whole lot of really, really good, really focused books, but it can sometimes have. It does have a problem that sometimes it's never. It doesn't really get around to telling you how to use them well. And I want to sort of focus on that problem and provide a way to, you know, go straight, get straight into werewolf in a way that goes beyond saying, "Oh yeah, it's the wire," but with werewolves. Mm. I think that that's a problem across the New World of Darkness, and it's really why we're doing the Chronicle books. And, and I think you put your finger right on it. There's some amazing stuff in there. And if you're, if you're, um, you know, experienced or just happen to have a, a mode that likes to tinker with game settings, the New World of Darkness is is like you know candy. It's, mm -hmm. it's awesome. Um, oh yeah. If, if if you're a little more casual about it, or maybe you just don't have the time to to you know think your way through what this thing is presenting, how do I put it into my own setting? That's really what we're looking at is is something that we can add to the New World of Darkness, and uh, that's what those the the God Machine Chronicle and the Strix Chronicle for uh, Requiem are both there to do. Um, give you give you a really good here. This is a actual chronicle that we've come up with that will you know play around with a lot of the ideas from the from the books you already have, and then 
Uh, you can take what you will from it. It's going to be a great read no matter what you want to do and hopefully inspirational, um, either to play through straight up or pull the parts out that you want. And, uh, and I think, you know, doing those two first um, then gives you the, the possibility that if, uh, if we get good response to that, that a Forsaken version like uh, Stu is working on or a, a uh, Awakening version of, of a Chronicle set would, uh, would then be the next thing we would, we would be looking at. So, um, but I think it's funny also that you say, well, why did Forsaken get anything? In almost the same <laughs> breath that you said, how could you possibly sustain the amount of releases you've got? <laughs> do I really sound like that? And it's yeah, okay. Okay. No, it's yeah, that is yeah, Rich's dude. official yeah. fan voice. That is his voice no, it is for all fans. Official, official. I need, I need, I need. I totally <laughs> recognize that 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 there are there are game lines that don't have any releases this year um, because we can't give every line that we put out ever a release every single time we put out you know a new right. set of releases and, and one thing I, and we is, talked about this is setting the stage hopefully for being able to then do things with forsaken and then do things for you know uh, a chronicle for awakening or for you know for promethean or certainly changing the lost you know always a always a biggie mm-hmm. but i know i know uh, rich and i talked about this a, a bit at gencon but it's something we've been saying a lot even before the onyx path announcement even before really even the Vanic the classic World Darkness stuff came back, but now with the fact that we have Prime Demand, the fact that we have these products available, there's 20-plus game lines now that are active in some form or fashion. And there's just no way to support all of those on a regular basis, in the sense of support as in constantly putting out new products for them. Uh, that's very, you know, supplement treadmill style of, of support. Um, it makes much more sense to support things along the lines of getting those classic books in a way that's much more accessible, making those classic books uh, much more friendly, uh, making them look better, uh, and then taking these existing support and making it persistently available so you have, okay, well, your game line's not getting a book this year, but all 12, 14, 20 books for that game line are right. now available. That's something that wasn't possible before. Before, if um, you know a Forsaken book went out of print, which a lot of them did, Tough luck. Go to eBay. It's the only way you get support for that game line anymore. And so we had to keep putting books out because older books would fall off. That's right. not the way things work anymore. So now, you know, if you want to play Forsaken, you have a, 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 a whole bunch of books available. And so support for that game line is getting is in getting those books out there so that way they can become more available because people can get them easier. That kind of support uh, is helpful. And then we can we do much more targeted support, like Stu was saying, is like there's a specific need this game line has. Can we fill it in a way that makes sense in our schedule? Then that support becomes much more meaningful and tactical than just okay. Well, it's time to crank out. Gotta get uh, another book because we don't want people. You know. well, that, that, actually, the phrase that bothered me, and I don't mean to mock you with my little voice, um, but the phrase that bothers me, and, and it was, it came up, I think, four point two nanoseconds after we released the schedule. Yes. Which is why no love for X? Uh-huh. Why no right. love for Forsaken? Why no love for and that could not be further from the situation, and, right. and it's it just it, there's, and it's hard to explain because I think people do you know why is it my favorite thing getting something cool? Well, totally understandable, but at the same time, like I say, it's you know there's there's things we can do and things we can't do, um, and this this we just try to make the best sense that we can. Right. But it's not a lack of love for yeah. a particular line. A perfect you example know. for me personally is one of my favorite games that we put out is Geist. I, I love Geist's uh, uh in a way that that's really 
kind of dirty. Line at times, it's it's kind of kind of kind of ugly. Um, but uh, one way that I was able to help support that was when it was time to do a reprint of that book for print on demands. There were a lot of problems with the core book due to the way it was produced together, and so we, you know, to sit down and, and originally I was going to do it, but then uh, Ethan was nice enough to kind of help out and take over to give it a 1.1 treatment, clean up a lot of those problems. That's the kind of support that Geist really needed. It didn't need a new book. It needed a better revision of the core. core yeah. And so that was the support and the love it got, and that was out, purely out of love for the game line. Um, and, and love of the other Geist fans who were saying, this core book has a lot of problems, we're very frustrated. So, so the idea of, of love and support, it, it, it's, it's less a, I mean, certainly, it's like, we would love to do more for, for everyone's for every game lines, but I mean, a lot of it is just helping to educate not only uh, the community, but also just educate the rest of the industry that we as a, a, a partnership of companies are going in a different direction in how we're visualizing these things. We, this is a very 21st century business model, and that means that a lot of the nuances of it are just going to change, and it's, it's going to be it's exciting time, but it does mean that that steady visceral churn of hey the new book is out that I can read is not necessarily going to be the, the way that we're going to support games it's going to be much more along the lines of wow this book really I waited a year and a half for it but it really fills exactly the hole I needed in my chronicle hmm. yeah, and I think a good point Eddie like you make is that uh, for the very first time you can you know we have a, a, a heck of a lot of SAS's out there now uh, every every line can, can find something in there that, that people can play and, uh, and and for the first time, you know, those things are all totally accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the back, the back stock. I'm, I think almost everything for the new world of darkness is out there. I know there's some glaring exceptions uh, that we're working on, uh, and mostly it's all out there in PDF with a couple of exceptions. But print demand is right. still getting up to speed. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, for the with the PDF, we're real close to having all the new world of darkness. It's just a yeah. few that that are the files have gone bad, and we have to figure out other ways to get them done. Right. And they're much, they're much more like right near the launch kind of stuff. Well, everything you would from think, my, Damnation City, you know. Well, okay, Let me put the, everything from my tenure on should be on PDF because <laughs> 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 I made damn sure of that. <laughs> so, I hope that answers your question. Um. Yes. Yes, I think it does. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, interesting. Chris, uh, Steve, do you guys have any uh, questions for our guests? Well, just. Yeah, just tying in again to like uh, the continual release of books. How does then that fit in with the idea that in Kickstarter, you guys are often the the, the production of even more material as rewards for those willing to chip in for ideas that you're perhaps not sure of or you don't think is uh, you know a viable idea. If you kick it out to the fans, they decide that they want it and then give them a bonus for knocking that out as well. Like the um, isn't there going to be a um, a Kickstarter wasn't there a Kickstarter bonus the red for list? the the red list the yeah, B twenty exactly. red list exactly. yeah. yeah I think that's one of the exciting things about that and and really what's neat about going into something like that is I mean it actually came out of a conversation I had with with Matt McElroy while we were doing the Kickstarter um, he was like you know I really 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 want to do this B twenty red list and I was like well you know it's that's cool but you know schedule is pretty well set can't don't really want to force things in there. And then we, you know, kind of threw it around and said, you know, but this might be great as a stretch goal. And in in, in that instance, it's a, it's very much, um, you know, right now, uh, uh, PDF only. I mean, I'm sure we will make that accessible to the to the regular public at some point. Um, we didn't 
say that it would be exclusive to the uh, to the the Kickstarter people, but that the Kickstarter people would get it, you know, first. Um, and so we're kind of still playing around with that kind of uh, what can we do in that that media. And I think looking at a lot of what the uh, the other Kickstarters that have either either started around the same time we did or have since come up and and gone through their their thing, we can find a lot of really great ideas. Uh, some of which we're trying to incorporate into Werewolf Twenty. Yeah, so there's much more of a flexibility available that wasn't available under the previous business model. Right. Um, I'm just trying to think if, if I have any other more que any extra questions. I um, ooh. <laughs> um, is there anything more to say on the um, on the front of say the kind of app development to tie in with any of the games? Like uh, any more kind of anything interesting growing there? I mean, no actual details, but it's just to give a feel of how that's moving forward. Well, I, I think you know we I think we touched on this uh, when I was yeah. talking to you guys before. Uh, I definitely believe there's more that can be done with um, mm. with RPGs in, in in app form or in you know a an extended version past the PDFs. The PDFs is a is a great place to to have started. It naturally flowed out of out of the materials that were made for um, for getting things ready for printers and things like that. So there's there's a, a real people who were creating these things could very easily see. Oh, I can make a PDF that is just a PDF. And again, the genius Monty Cook uh, was one of the guys who. Uh, really, really pushed that uh, back in the D20 days and uh, to everybody's betterment, I think. So, um, w but that's really, it, it's still kind of, this was our book and we've just put it in electronic form. There's so much more I think that can be done with these things. And so, yeah, we're talking to a, to a couple of uh, different uh, development houses on some projects right now, but, you know, nothing we can really talk about since we're just talking, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, to other, to other, to other companies who would probably not appreciate it if I said, "Hey, you know sure. what? We're talking about this thing." Right. Uh, but, but one thing I will say um, is, uh, all, some of this is a bit of technology catching up to us because I know this is something Rich and I talked about during okay. my job interview in 2007. <laughs> yeah. Was like, what can we do? This is not a PDF. And the reality was, you know, like when the Kindle first came out, it's like, is this it? No, this isn't it. You know, it really came around when when the iPads uh, really kicked off is when we started kind of seeing, yeah, this is the time. This is the time that really kind of pushing us a bit more. Um, and, and so uh, it's definitely something that's been on our collective radar for a very long time, and it's exciting to finally see some of those initial ideas we'd kick around like during lunches or in Monday mm -hmm. meetings, finally kind of getting some momentum going. This is a real thing we could possibly do. Cool. Um, and what was it? I read on the most recent update, Mummies in Layout right now. Yep. So I'm really eager to see that because... Um, yep. I've been so reading, going back through the some of the bits in in Mage where it makes mention of the Nameless Empire. So uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. And I'm also scratching my head on on ideas of um, some some ideas for uh, some some fan content that we can put out, which is based around relics from this ancient empire, but should be Ooh. of interest. Nice. So, uh, yeah. I think that's in our list of things to do, isn't it, Steve? It is. Yeah, we're quite excited about that. So yeah, um, yeah, mummy's gonna be great. Anything else, Mike? No, I don't really have any other questions off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I've got a quick office shoot to do with the changing breeds. Uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, Henyokai. I think that's how you pronounce that. Are mm -hmm. we gonna get a uh, another nod towards the Beast Courts uh, in the uh, new changing breed book? 
we're going to we're going to see some, but it's not going to be the full workup that they had in Player's Guide to the Changing Breeds. Mm-hmm. What we what we have is we have far more detail on each of the individual breeds, including the Kitsune, and the idea is because we now have Player's Guide to the Changing Breeds is available in PDF and Pod, I think, and the various breed books are. It's almost ready in pod. They're all marching into pod just now. I mean, I saw Corax and Bastet are now in pod. Um, Because we only have so much space in Changing Breeds, I really wanted to focus more on the Changing Breeds themselves and throw out some tidbits. So, I mean, the Hengioka do have... They have a section. They get a call-out, but it's not the sort of full detailed write-up that they had in Player's Guide to the Changing Breeds. Right, because again, Player's Guide to Changing Breeds is available. It's right there, so if you really want that information, yeah. just go get it. Exactly. Now, that being said, you know, we haven't really looked at it very very uh, intently, but, uh, you know, there is the potential that here's another interesting stretch goal when we put Changing oh, yeah. Breeds up for Kickstarter, you know? Mm-hmm. The and the is a stretch goal. Yeah. Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> we need to get Werewolf 20 kickstarted first. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. One at a time. Good stuff. So uh, I think that's it for this episode. Um, thank you uh, very much, uh, Eddie, Rich, uh, Steve as well, Stu. Uh, and of course, Justin and Ian both had to leave early. Um, really appreciate you guys coming on. Um, do you all have uh, us. a website that you want to uh, <laughs> pimp or whatever? Well, I definitely want to pimp the Onyx Path <laughs> website for anybody who hasn't checked it out yet. www.theonyxpath.com It's looking pretty slick uh, with more and more updates on there. Um, I think it's the first time I've looked at it since being away on all these conferences, and it just looks really great now. Cool. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm glad you think so. Yeah, um, uh, Ian is... Uh, is really responsible for keeping an eye on that and, and getting new things mm. up there. Uh, I'm continually sending him questions. What Can we do this? Can we do that? And he's like, oh, of course. I'll find a, I'll find a, a widget for that. And so, okay, cool. Sweet. And uh, uh, my personal website, uh, eddyfate.com, E-D-D-Y-F-A-T-E.com. Um, I, I just getting back in the habit of uh, updating it again. Mostly, it's, Lately, it's been mostly about my ear surgery and whatnot, but I'm trying to get some... Uh, some some content back up there on a regular basis, and also I uh, just did a huge update on my uh, bibliography, so all the stuff that I've developed and written is now actually updated on that website as well. And when you do that, do you have links like to it on Drive yeah. or something? Yep, they're all linked to Drive Through so everyone can buy those products and give you money, Rich. Well, I didn't really care about that idea. I was thinking about you. <laughs> I don't get anything. Well, actually, there's one. I do a personal uh, project. I do have a, a book. That I'm doing through uh, Flames Rising Press called Slices of Fate, where I do get a royalty from that. Uh, but everything else has been work for hire, so you're just giving money to Rich. Well, always a good thing, but uh, again, <laughs> more interested that people can actually see what the heck it is you're, you've written. Absolutely. Absolutely. In studio you have a website? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was, I was <laughs> zoned out of it. So, uh, <laughs> he was at Happy Stewland. Thinking about Fuzzy Werewolves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, you don't want to know. I don't. You're right. Yeah, my uh, personal site's at uh, 
www.zeropointinformation.com. Uh, just recently, I've put up a couple of expansions to the Werewolf Translation Guide. So there's one for translating the Vera, and there's another that expands the uh, tribes, converting the Apocalypse tribes into Forsaken rules. And they're up there, and you know, I pimp my own small press games and that. And like Eddie, I've got a full list of everything I've written so far with links to drive through. So you can throw money at Rich. <laughs> All part of the conspiracy. You guys are great. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. And of course, Darker Days Radio uh, has our own website, which is darker-days.org. You can also check us out on the uh, Posturous website, which is where all of our discussion mainly happens these days. Uh, I'll put Seems a link to that in the show quite notes. lively there. Yes. Uh, the Posturous yes. site? It's... Um... Yeah, we'll have um, some discussion of blood sorcery. I can guarantee that. Nice. Um, and anything else, Mike? Oh, we have a Twitter, as always. Um, I've actually been, one thing to note, I've been pimping this already on Twitter and to our Facebook and to Google+. So some people have been watching this live as, I, as we've been speaking. So Beautiful. That's good. Yep. Uh, yeah. Good. And um, yeah, once again, uh, thank you everyone for participating. Definitely appreciate it. And uh, be sure to stick around after the closing uh, credits on the audio version of this uh, to get the extra secret frequency. So thank you everyone and uh, have a good night. Tonight, we have a bonus secret frequency. Again, thank you to Steve for the generous donation. And I should also note that this secret frequency music was provided to us by Malleus some time ago. Sorry it took us so long to include it on the show. Perhaps some of you have heard of Akton Tunichil Muknil, the so-called Cave of the Crystal Sepulchre. Located in western Belize, near the town of San Ignacio, the cavern is an archaeological gold mine, containing well-preserved Mayan ceramics, stoneware, and skeletons. What makes the cave of the Crystal Sepulchre so unique is how these items are stored and preserved. Many Mayan artifacts left on the limestone cave floor have been calcified and fused to the stone, in some cases resulting in elaborate tiled patterns. The mines also chiseled small coveys and altars out of the cave stone for offerings. Perhaps the most interesting stonework is the array of animal heads and faces created to project silhouettes dancing in the firelight. The caves are an extensive network, three miles long, with large chambers, isolated aquifers, and passages leading up, down, and exiting through sinkholes. In the upper passages, Perhaps a winding mile from the entrance, archaeologists found 14 sets of skeletal remains. The most intriguing of these is the Crystal Maiden, a sacrifice victim that left behind crystalline bones. The Cave of the Crystal Sepulchre has numerous mine ruins nearby as well. Uh, one, for example, is the Cahil Pesh, the Place of the Ticks. Uh, it's a collection of 34 structures that served as a palatial estate 
for a powerful Mayan family. Uh, it's notable for its 75-foot-high temple in the center. Uh, archaeologists investigating the location determined that the location uh, was inhabited as early as 1200 BCE, but the structures were mysteriously abandoned in the 9th century Common Era. Another notable site is uh, the Zunan Tunish, which is a city that somehow kept thriving as the rest of the Mayan civilization crumbled. So, how can we use these ideas uh, and, and present them in the World of Darkness games? Well, early Vampire the Masquerade books hinted that Latin America's civilizations uh, may have been swayed by the Bali, and the Cave of the Crystal Sepulchre gives you some great imagery for the remnants of a Bali haven. The country of Belize was a British colony in the late 19th century, uh, making for a great location for Victorian Age Vampire games. Western Belize is ripe with archaeological adventures, as kindred scholars discover what Canaanites resided here in the past. Uh, stealing the plot of the TV version of Sharp's Gold, characters may discover a blood cult trying to emulate their Aztec ruins. Uh, yes, I realize I said Aztec instead of Mayan, but just have some fun with it. The Crystal Maiden provides a good concept for an alternate Promethean lineage. The, the Demiurge may reform a broken body by crystallizing its scars, or perhaps encasing it in glass. Uh, this lineage would be a perfect symbolism for human fragility. The cave of the Crystal Sepulchre is also notable for its plethora of predatory spiders. Perhaps these are truly lesser forms of the Azlu, but then, why are they there? And how do the Azlu interact with the tragic, angry spirits that developed here after decades of human sacrifice? What if the cave of the Crystal Sepulchre once held a Mayan mummy cult, when the cursed finally awakens after a millennia and finds its cult has vanished? and world irreversibly changed, how can the player characters quell its rage? Thank you.